This right here, this is a box of Pop-Tarts. If, uh, if you haven't had Pop-Tarts before, you might not actually have lived. So this is, uh, this is delightful. So this box of Pop-Tarts, uh, if you open this, I'm going to open this up just so you can see inside here. There's six packs in here. Um, and each of these packs has two tarts in there. These are strawberry, lots of different flavors, delicious Pop-Tarts. So something you may not know about me is that I have five siblings, four brothers and uh, a sister. So uh, God kind of knew what he was doing when he put six packs of Pop-Tarts in the Pop-Tart box because there were six kids and six of us. The other thing you might not know about me is that I was, um, was kind of small and a little scrawny when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, God, you know, this harmony thing that was going on with six kids and six Pop-Tart packs in here. But my siblings, they didn't really care much about God's harmony and the way he created things. So as a kid, I, by the time my skinny little self got to this box, there was like none left. Five siblings, eight, six packs. Somebody was guilty of taking the extra packs. And, uh, and so I wouldn't get uh, any of those. I was reading... Um, Something somewhere I came across a Winston Churchill quote this um, this past week that uh, Winston Churchill said the inherent vice of capitalism is an unequal sharing of blessing and I was like that's my childhood it's like an unequal sharing of blessing this this was blessing right here but my siblings were not into uh, into sharing quite so well so fortunately I had um, a very kind mother that uh, she was, you know, she was observant. She saw this thing going on. We were pretty poor when I was a kid, so Pop-Tarts didn't show up very often in my childhood. But when they did, and my siblings rolled in there and snatched them all before I got there, my mom was watching. She was paying attention. She knew what's, what was going on. So uh, along would come Christmas time, and I don't know how Christmas is for all of you guys, but um, Christmas was like justice time in my family. <laughs> so I don't remember much about the Christmas presents, but I remember stockings. I remember stockings were like epic in my family. So when it was time for us to open our stockings up, you'd get the like sock thing, whatever that is. You'd get that. There's like three things that fit in there. Not much fits in there. So we'd get the stocking and then they'd bring out, mom would bring out these like grocery bags for each kid. And so we'd get this brown paper bag and that would roll out and you'd just be like, oh, this is it, justice, you know. And I would get in that, in that grocery bag, I would get my own box of Pop-Tarts. I'd get my own six packs and 12 tarts and they were all mine. There would be our favorite cereal, cereal sort of like Pop-Tarts. You know, the little kid, by the time I woke up and got to the cereal box, it was gone. So I'd get my own favorite, like two or three cereal boxes in there, some of my favorite candies. And there was always a bag of army men. I don't know. So there was lots of food and a bag of army men for me to play with. That was my childhood uh, stocking. So, um, the, the, uh, so my, my siblings, we all knew the rules. So all six of us, everybody got their own bag of stuff. And we all knew the, uh, the stocking rules. So this was my stuff, hands off. Nobody was allowed to touch it. And that stuff would last as long as you could make it last. And I could make the stuff in that, ba that bag last a really long time. <laughs> So it was this like nurture thing that was happening in my childhood and my mom trying to make up for all the craziness of all my siblings, whatever. So, um, so then I grew up, you know, I, I've matured a bit over the years, grew up and um, I got married. And uh, for some reason, Wendy didn't get it. Like she didn't learn in her childhood that um, there were like snack stash rules 
You know, I had my snack stash and I keep that safe and she didn't understand that. So she would like get into my stash and eat my snacks. And so I was like, okay, we got to solve this. So I'll get her her own stash. So I'd buy her her own candy and all her favorite things and create a stash for her. And she'd go through it really fast and then she'd come after my stash again. It's like she wasn't getting this whole like scarcity model of like snack hoarding or whatever. So, so then I had kids. And for some reason, I do not understand, they are not born understanding snack stash rules. My kids did not get it. They were kind of like Wendy. They'd rush through their snacks, and then they'd somehow mysteriously find my snack stash and, and uh, eat it. So, so I've been married 23 years. I've had kids, uh, about 20 of those, almost 20 this year, my oldest daughter. And I've, you know, matured a bit over those years. I do still have a snack stash. Uh, but these days, it's more of a family and friends snack stash. So, you know, I've gotten to a place where I'm willing to share and have kind of learned uh, that there's not so much scarcity when it comes to snacks these days. I can share the Pop-Tarts and the Oreos and all of my favorite um, things. So there are all sorts of uh, economic theories and structures and systems in the world, all sorts of large systems and small systems and ways that we... Uh, and humans use our resources and hold on to them and priorities and all that sort of stuff. And we begin to experience those systems early, very early in our lives through the course of our days, shaped as I was by my childhood and experience with my siblings and family and the world uh, around me. Some people having a lot, some people going without. So in a conversation uh, the other day with a friend, we were chatting, uh, it was a friend who also grew up pretty poor in his childhood, and he was sh- shared uh, a feeling that he often has that I think is fairly common among a lot of people, particularly people that have grown up in poor sort of settings and families, that um, we said it, it's, it feels a lot like in my career that if I stop fighting and struggling and striving in my career, that I'm just gonna lose it all, all of a sudden. He described it as treading water. It's like I'm treading water, and if I stop treading, I'm just going to sink. And I think that's a pretty common um, among a lot of people. When it comes to money, to Pop-Tarts, to possessions, we've all been shaped in various ways by the world around us, by our family, by our friends, by our society, by our experiences, by media. So I was reading something else uh, this past week. It was one of those moments where, I don't know if you've had these moments where you feel like, I think somebody's playing me. I think there's like a system in place that's like convincing me of things and is uh, taking advantage of me and playing me. And this was one of those moments. I was reading this thing and I just thought, oh my goodness, I had no idea. So, uh, so I was talking about the reality following World War, World War I, about 100 years ago. So after World War I, uh, the corporations that had grown very rich and powerful as a result of producing all of the things that were needed for the war, began to worry that Americans were going to enjoy the peace, they were going to get content with what they have, and they were going to stop spending money. That Americans were not going to spend enough money to replace the money that the corporations and businesses were making from the war machine and all that was going on with the war. And uh, I read this quote from this guy named Paul Mazur. He was a a prominent banker. He worked for Lehman Brothers in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, listen to what he said. Uh, This was about, speaking of corporations, uh, about 100 years ago. This is what he said. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, 
even before the old have been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Human desires must overshadow their needs. And if you look at and study economics following World War I and you watch what companies and businesses began to do, this guy's words were prophetic. Desires overshadowing our needs, constantly striving for more. It's kind of a shocking concept and a shocking statement by this guy. So contrast that with what may be, I think, is maybe an equally shocking statement that we find in Scripture. Uh, it is written for us just a few years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. So it was the very early days of Jesus' followers beginning to put his mission and his teaching into practice as a group of people in the church, getting the church started. So we read this in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 4. So let me, let me read this for you. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. Those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So many of the people that this is talking about, the people in this early time of the church, these were folks who had followed Jesus during his life. They were in the crowd as Jesus was teaching. They were watching Jesus live his life, the way he used his resources, the way he shared his life and his resources with the people around him. They were observers of Jesus' life. And this passage gives us a picture of what it looked like for them to say, okay, we watch Jesus, now how do we live like him in this world today? This idea that they shared everything that they had. There were no needy people around them because they were sharing and taking care of one another. So I want to let those words sit with you a little bit. Just kind of hold on to that. We're going to come back to it in uh, a little bit. But last week, Wendy kicked off this new teaching series we're calling Thrive. So the idea here is we want to understand what does it look like for a church like Everyday Church to thrive, to be full of life, to be able to do the things that God has called us to do for decades to come in the future. What kind of foundational things need to be in place for us to be a healthy, full of life thriving sort of church that is loving and blessing and taking care of uh, our community in the ways that God has called us to. So this idea of Thrive is this series, and we're in week two of uh, the series. So as the leaders of the church and the teaching team were talking through this, and you were to say, what does it look like for a church to thrive? What needs to be in place foundationally? We came up with three things that we wanted to spend some time last week, this week, and next week on. So Wendy talked about team and serving last week. Today we're talking about resources and, uh, and next week, Alberto will be up here talking about leadership. So for everyday church to thrive, to continue to thrive as a church present in this neighborhood, we need a really strong culture of team and of serving. Working together, serving our community, serving like Jesus. Jesus who elevated and said the greatest aspiration for humanity is to be servants, to serve one another, to live your life in this sacrificial service sort of way. That's what he said was first and highest in life. And Wendy did a fantastic job last week talking about church as a team, church serving and people serving together. So you can check it out on the website if you missed it. So next week, Alberto will be up here talking about leadership. So from God's perspective, what does a leader look like? Why is leadership so important? What does it look like to lead as a team? 
for us to function in a way that we have teams of leaders leading and caring for and nurturing this church. So Alberto will be up here next week um, talking about that stuff. So today we're talking about resources, um, particularly money, and I understand, I want to recognize right off the bat, if this is your first time here, you visit Everyday Church occasionally, you're walking in on a day where we're talking about sort of family business and church money and that sort of thing. But the goal for today is to take a little bit different look at this not uh, just to kind of approach it a little differently. So I think it'll be helpful for, um, for all of us. So we're going to take, uh, take a little bit of time to talk through just basically what church is. And then I'm going to talk through a little bit of everyday church's history, how we got to where we are today. And then we'll talk a little bit more about finances and money and how that works for everyday church. So I want to start off with, uh, with a question. If you boiled church down, to its basic sort of simplest form. You take church and you boil it down to its basic simplest form. What would it look like? What is the church in its basic most simple form? So if you like to cook or bake or you're a creative person that kind of puts things together and creates things, then you understand this idea of ingredients or all the things that I need to create this sort of baseline thing, whatever. A cookie has some character. Bread has some characteristics, some basic things. There's lots of different kind of bread, but bread has some basic things that make it bread. So what does it look like for the church if we were to boil it down? So what I want to do is I'm going to do a little diagram up here, and um, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to draw and talk at the same time. This might not work. My drawing is normally spectacular, so if it's terrible today, it's because I'm trying to do two things at once. Or not. Okay, so, uh, so let's talk about church in its basic sort of form. So, all right, first thing you need uh, to have a church is people. Wendy's talked about this last week, that um, the idea that we talk about this a lot, the church is the people, the church is not a building, the church is not an event, that church is the people. And so to have a church, um, I didn't even practice this, so this is, this is going to be rough. So these are people, right? Those look like people. Uh, okay, so... In its basic form, you have to have people. If there's no people, there's no church. Okay, so church uh, is made up of people. All right, and to be a church, you got to have Jesus. Without Jesus, it's not a church. It's a social club. It's whatever. It's lots of different things, but it's not, it's not church without Jesus. So you've got this group of people, and Jesus is, wow, is that, a, that sort of looks like a J. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm not going to observe my own writing. Um, so we got people and this sort of centered around Jesus. And what starts to happen when you got people centered around Jesus is you start to have this sort of life-sharing relationship thing that starts to happen in the process. So people gathered around and centered on Jesus. When we study Jesus' life and we get to know him and observe how he lived, Jesus was very clear. He had a mission. Jesus has a mission. And so the church has a mission. So sometimes we'll say, uh, we talk about what's the mission of the church? Actually, a better way to think about this is that Jesus had a mission and he created a church for that mission. So Jesus has a mission and he created a church to accomplish that, to live that mission out. So Jesus has a mission and that means the church has a mission. M. All right. Okay, so then uh, along the way, you start to, you got to learn a little bit. So we have this churchy kind of word that um, is called, it's discipleship, the word discipleship. Uh, and so that's my D. Whew. All right, so uh, D for discipleship. Discipleship um, is a word we don't use in a lot of different contexts, but essentially the idea of discipleship is, uh, Jesus said, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. 
So Jesus has this idea of and teaching us a way to live, a certain way to live. It's countercultural. It's not easy. It's not something that comes naturally to us. And so we're learning together. To be a church, we're spending time learning together to be disciples, to be followers, committed, dedicated followers to Jesus. And so discipleship is a key and critical part of the church. If you take this, but there's no talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus, then it's not functioning in a way that's fully the church that we see in Scripture and the church that Jesus kind of, uh, the picture that he painted for us. Okay, so the last thing, this is more fruit of um, church. When you get a group of Christians together on a regular basis, inevitably somebody starts singing. So somebody starts singing, people pull out instruments, maybe somebody pulls out egg shakers. It's happened in the early days of every trade. Hey, I've just happened to have some egg shakers, so let's just, um, somebody pulls, you know, different instruments, things start happening, people start writing songs, whatever. So we have this thing we call worship. And a lot of times that comes in the form of music and praise and telling God what we think of him, that we love and appreciate and gratitude. And so we have Jesus at the center, people gathered around Jesus on a mission, learning, discipling, learning what it means to follow Jesus and worshiping him along the way. That, if you ever wondered what the church is, in its basic, simplest form, that is church. Now you can add buildings and paid pastors and all sorts of things to that. But none of those things are necessary. And in fact, when we look through history, we see times in history where the church was thriving just on the basis of this, without all of these other things that we typically attach to church. So it's really important as we start to understand just really basically and simply, what is church all about? We meet in a school. It's a really good thing that you don't have to have a building to be a church. Otherwise, sorry guys, this isn't church. But we are. We are the church because we got all this stuff that's going on. Okay, so that's the basics um, of everyday church. I'm done drawing, probably. All right, thanks. Thanks for that. You, I'm, I keep track of when people applaud. It's really strange what you guys applaud to. I don't, actually. I don't. Uh, all right, so there we go. Let's move on here. So that is uh, this concept of what the church is. And I think it's helpful for us to get our minds around that before we move into really talking about money or maybe how money um, works in the church and has worked in the church throughout history. Okay, so let's talk about how we got here, Everyday Christian Church. So I just want to just talk through the history of uh, Everyday Church a little bit. So there are some people in the room that have been here from the beginning, but a lot of you came along the way, kind of at some point gathering together in different sort of settings. You kind of got mixed in through a party or a cookout or a group or gathering here on Sunday morning or whatever. So a lot of you have come in along the way, and may not know the sort of history of how did we form this thing and begin to move to this point uh, where we find Everyday Church today. So, uh, so hold on. I'm going to give you like eight and a half years, maybe a little bit more than that, of uh, Everyday Church history. So in 2008 and uh, 2009, a few families uh, honestly fell in love with Inwood and Washington Heights and uh, started praying and talking about what God might be up to, what he was doing in this neighborhood, and maybe how we could join in with what God was doing um, here. So in the fall of 2010, so this was eight and a half years ago now, a group of, uh, of 12 adults, 12 folks, 12 adults and a few kids, 12 adults and kids, so there were three kids in the room and nine adults. Uh, this was back in fall 2010. Uh, we started meeting in an apartment here in Inwood, and we started wrestling with, and so kind of think about this uh, as we're talking. 
because there were 12 of us gathered around, followers of Jesus, praying, talking about what does it look like to be Christians. And we started asking questions about mission. What does it look like to be Christians present in this community? We started asking questions about what does it look like for us to love well? How does Jesus want us to live our lives? What did he teach and how does that relate to how we're functioning as a group of followers of Jesus present in this neighborhood? And so we started doing the learning, the discipleship thing, and we started wrestling with mission. And along the way, Somebody would pull out an instrument and or an egg shaker or whatever, and we'd somebody start singing, and we just spent some time worshiping in different times uh, along the way. So there was a point in the early conversations that fall where we were studying the book of Acts in the Bible, which is the history of the early days of the church. So after Jesus ascended into heaven, his followers were like, uh, now what? What do we do? The Holy Spirit comes and helps lead them and figure out what does it look like to be the church. And so that's kind of what Acts gives us, the history of those uh, early days of the church. So we were looking at some stories in the very beginning of Acts, and we came across several verses that said that the early followers were meeting every day sometimes in their homes, sometimes in public, but they were gathering every day, they were sharing meals together every day, and uh, someone in the conversation said, hey, we do that. Well, maybe we should call ourselves Everyday Church. And everybody was like, well, that sounds cool. <laughs> so that's how we got the name. The cool thing was we realized by picking the name Everyday Church, it was this sort of challenge to us, to a reminder that church is not about Sunday. The church isn't a building or an event. The church is the way we are the people centered on Jesus with a mission, discipling and worshiping him every day. The way we function and live our lives as the church, as followers of Jesus every day. And so we had a name, Everyday Church. So uh, we had a name. We had this small group of 12 people that started growing gradually that fall and into the spring. Eventually, we couldn't fit into one apartment, so we started another group. And this was a rough day when we were like, guys, we can't all fit. We got to meet in two different places, but I don't, I don't want to break up the team. Come on. We want to be. So there was a lot of mixed emotion. But we realized, like, if we're going to keep doing this thing, we got to meet in a couple different spaces so we have room. So we started meeting in another house also, and then eventually there was another group. And along the way, we started missing, like, all being together. So we decided, hey, we have a great relationship with the school in this building. So what if once a month we met here at the school and we kind of did this worship and learning and praying thing together. And so we started doing that about in like March or April of 2011, so about eight years ago. Um, and uh, we started meeting once a month here at the school, and on the other Sundays we were meeting in homes still. And gradually through that time, the group continued to grow, and we wanted to spend more time, all of us together, so we started meeting every other week at a point here at the school. Eventually we started meeting here every week like we do now, and our group started meeting at other times during uh, the week, other days uh, uh, of the week and other times. So we were uh, volunteering here in the school and in some other schools in the neighborhood. We're helping different projects in the neighborhood, serving in lots of different ways, meeting lots of people, eating lots of meals together, and, uh, and started meeting more and more frequently in this place in addition to the stuff we were doing in apartments. So when we think about like what we began to really care about as a church, we realized that relationships and building relationships was an essential part of who we were as a church. And so we're all about pursuing life-changing relationships with Jesus and with the family of God. What does it look like for us to have deep, rich relationships as a family of God and to invite people into that? We care deeply about being multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-economic, reflecting the beautiful diversity of the community around us, 
Emotionally healthy relationships, we realized, were not optional. We had to spend time understanding how to connect and love one another well, and so we invest in emotionally healthy relationships. And we're committed to the well-being, to the shalom, the flourishing of our community and the neighborhood around us. So we went from a living room in 2010 to this school and to a variety of uh, apartments around the neighborhood. We went from 12 folks at the beginning to impacting literally hundreds of people over the last eight and a half years since we've got started. You, don't, you guys don't know this, or some of you do and some of you don't if you stay connected with folks that move away, but there are loads of people in other cities that are living on mission, loving their neighbors, serving and caring, that they learned how to do that here. They were impacted by the ministry here at Everyday Church, and then their jobs or their family or their life took them somewhere else, and now they're involved in serving and living on mission in other places in the world. Literally hundreds of people that have been impacted by the ministry of Everyday Church. We had uh, three kids, my three children, at the beginning uh, in that living room. We have impacted dozens and dozens of kids' lives in this neighborhood and around, uh, around the world because of the ministry of Everyday Church, because you guys have loved children so well and invested so much in uh, our kids. So we had no band like nine years ago, no music really, and now we have an awesome band. We have a great team of people that lead us so well, exactly, that lead us so well as we gather together and we lift up our voices and uh, we share and we learn through that process and we learn how to tell God we love him and express good things to him. So uh, something else you might know, not know also, I did the math just the other day, <clears throat> excuse me, but over the past eight years, Everyday Church has given away almost $200,000. So in the last eight, nine years, we've given away um, yeah, nearly almost exactly $200,000, helping people in our neighborhood um, through financial uh, difficulties and tough times, making counseling affordable for loads and loads of people over the years, uh, supporting youth ministries like Young Life and Exodus and other groups and ministries in the community that are serving kids, mentoring in the schools and blessing children, uh, helping support new churches. We have a portion of our giving that goes to help start new churches uh, around the country to reproduce really what is happening here and what God has done for us. I don't know if you, those of you who were in the neighborhood in um, the, uh, 2012, but there was a fire that burned the building down on the corner of 207 and Broadway in 2012. Everyday Church, that, that fire happened. There were lots of different businesses in that building. One of the things that Everyday Church did was raise thousands of dollars to help some of those businesses as they were trying to recover from that fire. Super cool experience for us to get to be a blessing um, collectively as the church for the neighborhood. So Hurricane Sandy hit, uh, whatever year, I don't even remember what year Hurricane Sandy was, but what was it? 2012 also. So uh, we raised, Everyday Church and our partner churches around the country and different folks that we were connected to raised, we raised thousands of dollars. I think it was like eighteen or $20,000 or something like that that we raised um, to, to help families who had lost cars or um, jobs or businesses or homes or whatever because of Hurricane Sandy. So I want to jump back just for a second to let us read again with all of that stuff in mind, thinking about what the church is and our history, a little bit of everyday church's history, and read that passage from Acts chapter 4 again. So as I mentioned, it was early in the days of the very first church within uh, not too many years of when Jesus ascended to heaven. And uh, it was probably a church that's a little bit younger than everyday church, but similar in age to, um, to everyday church. So check out this one more time. All the believers 
were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's blessing was on the, upon them all. There were no needy people among them. So when you follow that first church and the churches that that church helped start all around uh, the world eventually, when you look at them and you see, uh, it's very fascinating to see how they use their financial resources. This is not, when you read this sort of stuff, you think, wow, okay, hold on a second. Like, that's not how we use our finances very often, not how we think about uh, the resources that we have. And I'm amazed, really, by this sort of collective perspective that they had on their resources, that people were pooling their resources together to help the church live its mission. So we see in uh, accounts in scripture of churches in one area helping churches that were going something through something terrible, areas uh, around the Mediterranean, the church, uh, original church in Jerusalem, and uh, areas around there that were going through famine. And one church in one area would send money and resources to a church in another area to help them deal with what was going on in society and the community around them. So we see churches helping churches. We see uh, older folks or younger folks helping older folks, taking care of widows and uh, families that are going through death or difficulty. The wealthy helping the poor. Christians helping their neighbor, helping kids, widows, the sick, the incarcerated. All of these things, on and on and on, this generosity. This steady theme through scripture, of shared resources, as if what they owned was not their own, as if it was this thing that we do and share together. So several weeks ago, Kim uh, hosted Financial Freedom Workshop here in the school uh, after service, and about 40 folks or so, I think over 40 people registered for that, with the goal, and some of you were in that uh, in that room, and the goal going in, like, I want to be a little more intentional and a little uh uh, stronger with the way that I use uh, my finances. So Kim made a comment in, I think it was during the workshop, um, you can just roll through life without really making a plan for your money. You can just kind of let it happen, let life happen. But if you're looking for financial health, financial peace, stability, financial stability in your life, that takes a lot of time and a lot of discipline and a lot of, a lot of intentionality about how you use your resources. And that same thing is true for churches. It's no different for churches. It's not just going to happen that we will be a financially stable and thriving church. It's something that we have to put energy into if we intend to thrive. If we want to be a church contributing and blessing this neighborhood for decades to come, we've got to invest time and discipline and intentionality in how we think about uh, our resources as a church. So the leadership team uh, at Everyday Church, just so you kind of know a little bit of how this stuff works, the leadership team at Everyday Church, we take this very, very seriously. We create a budget every year for uh, what we believe that we need in order to, uh, to do all the things that God has called us to. So the various ministries and staff and generosity, our goal this year is for 15% of everything that comes in to go back in different forms of generosity to our community. Uh, and so we're very intentional about creating a budget and making sure we're very wise in as a church in how we uh, use our resources. So we make a plan for all the money that we believe that we need to function. For 2019, just so you know, I'm going to write this up on the screen or up on the board here just so you can kind of keep an eye on it. So our goal for 2019 is $165,000. So Everyday Church needs $165,000 to come in in order for us to function and to really do the things that we feel like God has called us to do. So 
so $165. So a number of years ago, and this is, um, uh, we spent some time talking about generosity, and there was a kind of a funny thing that we did that I was like, should we do it again? No, it's a little weird, but I'm going to tell you about it in just a second. So when you're looking in... Um, when you're looking in scripture, you see this like general practice of generosity of people individually um, being generous with their family and their friends and their neighbors. We see this sort of general generosity uh, in scripture, but we also see believers uh, bringing a portion of their income to, in the Old Testament, was to the temple, in the New Testament, to the church, to the leaders uh, of the church, to contribute towards the work of the church. And as you're reading through scripture, you'll see this term tithe. So you've probably seen it or you've heard somebody mention this word tithe. Tithe is actually just a math word. All it means is one-tenth or 10%. But it's a term that we run into in scripture that was used to refer to, uh, to people bringing their tithe, bringing a portion of their resources to the temple or to uh, the church. Now, in the New Testament, it's not commanded. There's a lot of commands about giving in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. In the New Testament, from Jesus on, there aren't specific commands about like how much you're supposed to give. Uh, but this idea of tithe, this term tithe and 10%, has been used as kind of a model for people to think about or aspire to in their generosity towards God's work and towards uh, a church. And so you'll run into that in Scripture peri periodically. So a number of years ago, we were doing the similar sort of teaching. We're talking about money and how that works for the church and letting people understand how we manage and take care of and use the funds that you guys all contribute. And uh, we had the idea that we wanted to give the ch we wanted everybody to kind of see, like, what kind of potential do we have as a church? When we're thinking about our financial resources and, wow, this 165000 maybe that looks like a lot to you. But, what, like, what potential do we have? And so we gave everybody a scrap of paper. And everybody wrote their total income on that scrap of paper. No names. No, there were no names attached to it. So just got a piece of scrap of paper, tore it off a piece of paper, and just wrote 10000 20000 50000 whatever your income number for the year was. And everybody threw that in a bag. And then we pulled those out and added them up. And the group was probably a similar size to where we are today. And we just wanted to kind of get an idea of, like, collectively, what is, how has God blessed us collectively as a church? The number that day was 2400000 That was the number that our church earns in a given year, which was kind of like, wow, that's kind of cool to know. I suspect if we did that same exercise, we might come up with a similar sort of number, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. Um, we, there were no like really rich people in the room. We've, we, that's not how everyday church rolls. We don't have a lot of rich folks in the room. Uh, but a lot of people making a little bit, making good money, some, a lot of single family, single income homes, a few dual income homes. So we're pretty average in terms of the, the diversity economically of our church. Uh, and it was $2.4 million. So we were like, okay, if Everyday Church were in a spot, it's not easy to get to a place where you can give 10%. But what if? What if this sort of model that we see is this thing we aspire to? We were able to get to a place where we were giving 10%, each of us. In that day, $2.4 million would create $240,000 that we would use for the ministry. And we're thinking, okay, we're at 165. We, 240, wow, what, what would it look like for us to be, begin to use those resources to bless and take care of? We're already an incredible, incredibly generous church. We have the chance and opportunity to do loads of things for schools and kids and lots of different things in the neighborhood. How much more generous could we be? So it was just helpful to kind of get our minds around the potential 
that we have when we begin to look at our things as not our own, when we start to see that maybe what I have, I can share. Maybe I have plenty and my family has plenty. What does it look like for me to be generous and to love and care for my neighbors and be a part of this uh, church financially? Um, so God has provided very generously for Everyday Church. You guys, I want you to know this, over the years have been incredibly um, faithfully generous uh, to this church. All the things that I talked about earlier, we're able to do because of the generosity of the people of Everyday Church. We are very healthy when it comes to financial and we're finances, and we're able to give extraordinarily to our community, and that is because of your generosity and your faithfulness and hard work as a church, and uh, I just want you guys to know that. So with uh, a strong culture of team and service that Wendy talked about last week, with healthy finances and resources, and with a strong, growing team of leaders, Alberto will talk about next week, we are building and maintaining an incredible foundation for Everyday Church to continue to thrive, to live life fully in this community and be a blessing and bring life uh, to this neighborhood. So in um, the 1960s, there was uh, a man by the name of Jean Venner. He um, moved from Canada to, I think he was the, the son of like the leader of Canada at the time, whatever, but he moved from uh, Canada to France. His story is pretty incredible. Um, his goal in moving there was specifically to work with adults with disabilities. So based on the horrible conditions in the 60s and before that, and even uh, today, conditions of hospitals and facilities for adults with disabilities. Uh, and so he moved to do something about that. And what he did was he got a small house and he started inviting adults with disabilities and people without disabilities to come and live in this house together, to share their lives, to share their home, and uh, to live and share life together um, with all of their various disabilities. So over the past 50 years, Venere has traveled around and taught and communicated this idea and shared his vision. And I think of, of uh, folks sharing lives and homes and living with folks with disabilities. So I think the number is over 130 now of homes that uh, have resulted from the work that he's done around the world. I wanna read for you something that he wrote that struck me as very much related to this idea that we're talking about today. And I wanna kind of close with, uh, with his words. So check out what John Venere wrote. In the midst of all the violence and corruption of the world, God invites us today to create new places of belonging, places of sharing, of peace and kindness, places where no one needs to defend himself or herself, places where each one is loved and accepted with one's own fragility, abilities, and disabilities. This is my vision for our churches, that they become places of belonging, places of sharing. So Jesus has a mission, and he created a church to accomplish, to live that mission out. Churches that are places of belonging, places of sharing, churches that thrive, that bring life to their communities. May Everyday Church continue to be that kind of church.